0: I'm content to die for my beliefs So cut off my head And make me a martyr The people will always remember it
1: hey luke thanks for uh coming to talk to me this is uh this is very exciting for me um i read your book a few months ago maybe it's been like six months or something now and i enjoyed it i enjoyed it very much but i also got a lot out of it despite the fact that i was already pretty familiar with the work of renee Girard, who obviously is your primary influence um you know, my interest in Girard drew out of my interest in religious studies and literature and mythology. So it was very helpful to read a book that kind of pulled me out of ancient history and mythology to apply those same ideas to a lot of the decisions that we make in our modern daily lives. Um, so maybe we'll start there. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of the, specifically like in terms of the journey that led you to these ideas and kind of put you in a position to have that holy shit moment, you know, as you describe it, like when you encountered these ideas?
2: Well, you can come at your art from a lot of angles. Um, And mine was really just a get my life in order angle at first. And then it became a theological one. So I think I have to go way back to the beginning. Um, I think you should understand a little bit about me and how I grew up because the mimesis was really, really active in my early life. And that's why Gerard resonated with me so much when I came to understand what mimetic desire was. So I grew up as an only child in West Michigan in um, a heavily Polish Catholic uh, neighborhood in Grand Rapids. And I had a lot of problems as a kid. Uh, I mean, I was a middle class family. I was a pretty decent student. But I think because I was an only child, uh, I needed to find all of my models Uh, outside of my family, you know, I didn't have an older brother or something like that to to look up to. Uh, And I found them all over the place, sometimes not in the best places, you know, I found them on MTV, I found them, uh, you know, in AOL chat rooms, you know, back in the day. Um, And I I sort of rejected the culture that I grew up in, um, to the point where I started getting in a lot of trouble at school, uh, and was really having a hard time finding my place, I felt like a total, you know, outsider, um and I think as a as a middle class kid growing up in West Michigan, um, I just thought it was lame, you know. I thought life was was lame. And I this is really important, I think, understand the journey and, and Gerard. And I rejected all of the models around me and I took different ones, the ones that seemed cooler, uh sexier, um, uh tougher than me. Um, and I found a lot of them in kind of hip-hop culture, right? So You know, as a kid going to a little Catholic school on the west side of Grand Rapids, um, uh, I didn't have very many white friends, actually. And, um, you know, I was called, you know, a horrible racial epithet, um, you know, that starts with a W instead of an N. Right. And it's like a, it's like doubly insulting and vile, right. It's like you're insulting everybody with that. Um, and the funny part about it is that it it's actually the accusation that one is being mimetic or imitative. Right. If you think about it, right. It's kind of like, these kids don't know what they're saying, but it's kind of like, Oh, you're, you're, you 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 do not know who you are. You sort of betrayed your own culture or something like that and adopted somebody else's. I had such a, a poor sense of self at that point in my life. That is in a sense what I had done. Um, and also, you know, this, this sort of lifestyle, right. Was, was, was glorified to me. Um, it's funny. I shared on Twitter not too long ago, a picture of me bench pressing upstairs in my room with the Kangol hat on, just angry, just you know, listening to uh, Tupac or something like that. And um, you know, that's, and then I got kicked out of school and, uh, I uh, got in a fight and, you know, walked into my principal's office, you know, wearing a bandana and basically told him to go fuck himself one day. Um, and, you know, I went to the other school in town. My grades, uh, I, it's funny, I was just cleaning out my my parents' house a couple, couple of months ago and I saw my grades went from a 3.9 to a 2 something between my freshman and sophomore year. Um, I was a quarterback of the football team. I broke my femur, um, just pissed me off even more. I just became more isolated, um, totally tanked, right? So I I was checked out. In high school, I um, got into the only, I wanted to go to New York City because that's where I thought everybody um, lived who was was cool that I wanted to uh, pursue. So I went to a small little school in lower Manhattan called Pace, um, did pretty well there. You know, I was outside of West Michigan and and I started to come into my own a little bit, um, transferred into the, the business school at NYU. Um, and then I, I was on this very hyper mimetic path where I just started adopting new models. Now my models were. Um, the guys that wanted to work on wall street because that's where you can make the most money. So that's what I did uh, was totally miserable on wall street. Uh, and then when I was 23 and I, I worked a little bit in New York and a little bit in, in Hong Kong in investment banking. And then I quit my job uh, to move to California and start a company with my cousin when I was 23 and to make a really long story short, I ended up co-founding or founding um, four companies in the twenties. By the time I was uh, 29 Having had some success uh, and some failure, uh, I was just listless, um, just kind of like mooring on a sea and miserable quite frankly and I couldn't put my finger on what was going on so you know I tell the story in the book, but the the this is the backstory here is that um, you know I was introduced to Rene Girard around this time um, and I, I had I think this is a really important word and it's connected to what, what mimetic desire is. I think I had what, um, you know, the Christian spiritual tradition would call a chadia. And I think this is a really important thing to understand because it's a false relationship to freedom. And I'm, when I get to the next part of my journey um, I'll, I'll explain kind of what I did, I think, um, and why I did it and why mimetic desire resonated with me. But chadia but is, is this, it's a false idea of freedom. It's like a, a form of freedom that's unmoored from any kind of um, context, any kind of tradition, any kind of culture. It's a disembedded kind of freedom where my highest aim or one's highest aim is the satisfaction of their personal desires, right? The pursuit of their personal desires, my own little empire of desire inside of my own skull-sized kingdom. It's a lonely place to be. It's no wonder I was miserable. Um, and, and that's, that was what was, was governing my life. Even while I thought myself highly independent, um, different from all of the other kids that I grew up with, because I went to New York city, um, I fought, you know, and got this job on wall street. I started my own company, thought of myself as, as really in control of my own life. But in fact, um, I was like, I was the underground man. I was like, you know, completely tethered to all of the different you know mo- models around me. And when one is sort of suffering from this um, kind of, you know, chadia is typically translated as sloth or laziness. It's like a kind of metaphysical boredom, right? Where you know you're not able to adhere to reality for more than like a few seconds or or, or 30 minutes, right? Like I would go to parties in my late 20s. I very specifically remember one that I hosted uh, at, at a cool place in Vegas. And, you know, I enjoyed it for 30 minutes. And then for the rest of the time, I sat there drinking my drink, tapping my glass, looking around um, and not able to find any kind of enjoyment. Right. It's startling. And this is right around the time when I realized, like, Luke, before you continue down this path, right, you, you've got to figure out what this disease is that you, know, you, you can't name. Right? Something's going on that you can't name. I stepped away from my company and had. What you know, I, I would realize years later um, was was sort of the start of a real uh, conversion experience. And you can take that word in a in a religious sense, or you can just take it as metanoia, like a, I, I literally stopped in my tracks and I turned around, and and I looked at my life and I took stock of you know what what I had done, um, and I had left a lot of destruction in my wake, and I experienced this sort of um, I experienced some shame and guilt and, and sort of repentance that ended up making me completely reevaluate, um, my relationships, um, the way that I understood freedom. And that eventually took me, um, to, uh, seriously, uh, you know, discern, um, Religious vocation, so I actually, you know, I, I moved to Rome. I was in the, in the seminary for a few years. Um, you know, some people uh, have various ways to sort of focus their, um, you know, to sort of focus their energies. Um, you know, some people might go into the navy. I went into the seminary, right? Um, and it was it it was a it was a life changing experience for me as I began to be like oriented and and sink down into something that gave my life some structure for the first time and allowed me to go through a process of self-examination. Uh, I was introduced to Rene Girard around this time um, through a retreat director uh, who basically uh, had me read all these obscure texts um, like Apollonius of Tiana, uh, and not tell me why I was reading them uh, and trying to get me to see uh, some of the contagion and social forces that had been shaping my life. And then my eyes were really o- open to this. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, in my book, like it was, it didn't happen in an instant. It wasn't this aha moment. It was like, Oh, look how mimetic everybody else is. Uh, and that's what I call the, my, my Oh shit moment. Like human, you know, desire is sort of mimetic by, by nature and people are pretty freaking mimetic, sometimes in ridiculous and silly ways. And then, yeah, months or months, maybe years later, it's hard to put like an exact moment on it. I had my holy shit moment. Like I'm worse than anybody. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of these things. I've been the on the other side of this. I, I've been the accuser. I've been the one that's thought myself completely autonomous and not mimetic. Um, and then that led me into an even deeper experience Of, of, uh, I'll just call it conversion, Um, a a deeper experience of stepping back and saying, all right, Luke, like you either need to understand who you are and what desires are worth pursuing, or uh, you're going to spend the rest of your life um, chasing these thin ones that ultimately leave you disillusioned. You can't do that to other people, right? You can't, you know, pursue women only to become disinterested in them after a couple of months or weeks or hours, whatever. Um, same thing with jobs and friends. Um, you know, you, you've got to find something that's worth investing in. And that's, quite frankly, um, you know, why, why Girard was so important to me. I mean, I eventually explored him from a theological angle, and that's very fascinating. But if I hadn't had the experience, the intimate experience of my own life, I don't know if it would have resonated with me as much. That idea today is very interesting. I've never heard
1: that word before, but I have thought about the concept that you kind of mentioned, which is, uh, you know, the idea of freedom being like by itself being essentially just an empty form awaiting content. And that we tend to think of freedom as freedom liberation from obligations and liberation from responsibilities, but those are obviously the things that structure and give meaning to our life as well. And so, you know, people who, uh, like maybe a typical example is when people retire, for example, you know, they're, they're very motivated. They're, you know, even up until their sixties, they're working, they're very motivated, energetic, and then they retire and they just quickly fall apart and get depressed maybe, or, or just their health declines because they don't have any structure and meaning. Um, you know, people in in especially in the modern context um, where we you know sort of make an idol out of the individual human will can be very resistant to the idea that their desires are not sort of their own not this ex nihilo thing that just grows out of them uh, alone uh, but in fact are absorbed from or, or put there by other people you know people will if you tell people that bring this up to them they'll very often respond the way that people respond when you tell them there's you know, if you, if you tell them that there's no such thing as free will, for example, like they almost take it as a personal affront and you can kind of understand why. Um, but how would you sort of help that person understand the mimetic nature of desire? And I guess we should probably talk a little bit about what that even means.
2: Well, why don't we start there? Um, I'll try to make it as, as, as concrete as I can. Mimetic desire means that the very nature of human desire is imitative. It means that. You know, while we often think that desire is generated either by the object of our desire or is generated from within us, uh, the truth is, Gerard said, the truth is that desire doesn't come from either one of those places. In fact, it comes from a third party or a third person who mediates our desires for us. And very often that third person is hidden from us and we'd never want to admit that they're there. Okay, so um, certainly we have instincts and biological drives. Um, you know, if, if I'm in front of a, of a beautiful woman, um, I don't necessarily need anybody to mediate uh, my desire for her to me, right? I have built in instinctual mechanisms, okay, that will attract me to her. Um, however, um, my, how I value beauty may have been mediated to me by my friends and my culture. Um, Her individual value as a mate may be mediated to me. Um, I may be secretly looking around to see who else desires her. And if nobody else does, um, she probably has diminished value in my eye, right? Conversely, If somebody who's um, a rival to me or somebody who I look up to or think is cool or attractive is attracted to her, um, it increases her value in my eyes. So I I think it's wrong to say that everything's either like some things are totally mimetic and other things totally aren't. I think often there's a bit of a spectrum here and the mimesis and the instinctual things begin to blend together. And sometimes we can do things for more mimetic reasons or less mimetic reasons or
1: real quick can i ask you um do you think it would be appropriate to um say that i don't know maybe there's a better word but needs are things that we pursue by instinct or some other kind of fixed process um whereas desires are kind of by definition those things that we pursue according to like mimetic influence right
2: like the example you gave about
1: there's sexual energy and desire that's there for everybody but if you look at like um the, the female body ideal in Renaissance art or something, it would be different than what you'd see on Vogue magazine or something today. Right. And that's sort of the mimetic element.
2: A hundred percent. I think needs is a good way to differentiate them. Right. I'm thirsty. I want a glass of water. I'm starving. You put a steak in front of me. I'm going to eat it. Those are needs, right? I'm cold. I seek warmth, but most of our <coughs> desires, at least in the world that you and I live in, Daryl, are, are, are more abstract um, I mean, I spend most of my day pursuing things that I don't need to survive. Um, you know, they're things that I think will help me to, to, to flourish. Um, some of those things are very abstract things, like a certain kind of lifestyle or going on vacation in a certain place. Right? Um, the idea is that there there is no like biological or instinctual basis for you know me wanting to go to Bora Bora, right? I mean, I might not even know that it exists if it were not for some model of desire that I have that, that has shown me pictures on their Instagram or something. So yes, so so mimetic desire is, is more important to understand than ever before, because we, we live in a world where desires are being mediated to us. And, you know, it's easy to see, um, let's just go to children. And then I'll, we can talk about how it manifests itself in adults, because It manifests itself differently in children than it does in adults. And it tends to go um, underground in adults and manifest itself in really peculiar ways, uh, especially in in romantic relationships and in um, competitive situations like politics. Um, what Dostoevsky wrote a whole book about this called the eternal husband. It's, it's one where he's most explicit, right. About mimetic desire and how it works, but in children, you know, you see, uh, you know, we're born into a family and, you know, after we've nursed and we've been fed, uh, we start to look around at, you know, to, to, we don't know what to want. And our first model of desire is usually our mother. Um, you know, babies have been shown to, track the gaze of their mothers from the time that they're just weeks old and they take an interest in what their mother takes an interest in. Um, They wouldn't even think to look at something. And it's, it's almost as if they say, Oh, mom thinks that that's um, of interest or desirable. So I need to pay attention to it too. And then they adopt other models as they grow and develop. It might be an older brother uh, when they, you know, get into high school, certainly it's, you know, some, some upperclassmen or something like that. Um, it's hard to think of many situations where um, desire is not socially influenced in some way. Um, As as people get older, and you know, think about it, uh, uh, children like openly imitate, they're often like very proud of their imitation, right? They like it when you imitate them, if you play the game with a toddler, you know, or you're imitating them, and and then they imitate you back, right? Everything is very open. Um, And as we get older, we tend to hide Um, the way that we imitate. And this is, I think, why Girard called this mimetic desire and not imitative desire, because he he said mimetic to imply that there was something um, subversive, hidden, um, and quite frankly, um, had the potential to be dangerous about the way that we imitate. It's essentially imitation that tends to lead towards unhealthy relationships and specifically rivalries with other people we see it even in children and the most classic example of mimetic desire and rivalry that you can see in a room full of toddlers is, you know, you put, you turn them loose in a room full of toys and one little girl picks up a red fire truck. Now why she picked it up. Um, who knows, right? It's a multifactorial thing. Maybe her dad's a fireman. Maybe she, you know, just the, the red caught her eye right away, but she picks it up and immediately, and and she's, You know, in the middle of the room, she's really cute. And she just is obsessing over this toy. I think it's the best thing she's ever seen. Inevitably, what happens is that this attracts the attention of another child who comes over and wants to play with the fire truck, even though there's toys to go around for everybody. Okay. 10 toys per kid. All of a sudden, this kid becomes obsessed with the fire truck and his interest and desire to play with the fire truck reinforces the, the original little girl's desire to play with the fire truck. So mimetic desire has a way of reinforcing itself in us. It's like, oh, so you want to play with this too? Now I'm even more interested in it because I don't want you to take it away from me. Um, and then, you you know, we see the rivalry, this kind of behavior, even in children. And it sort of gets buried in, not in everybody, but in, in many people, it gets buried and it goes underground, under the surface of things that we like to talk about in polite company, um, and manifests itself in all kinds of unhealthy behaviors in adults. Yeah, like with kids, I mean, they'll be they'll be very direct and explicit,
1: right? You'll say, "Well, why do you want one of those?" And they'll say, "Because Johnny has one," and they'll just say it like that. Whereas when we, you know, it, you think that's a cultural thing because we sort of value individual expression and originality so much in our culture um, or is that something that just happens as you kind of grow into an adult where you feel the need to suppress your you know the the mimetic nature of the things you're doing because like doesn't Gerard also say um, and well I I think you maybe a lot of people would would say this in different ways that uh, reciprocity and other mimetic processes kind of have to be concealed um, in order to maintain their effectiveness right you know because um, if you feel like once you, it's like, once you notice it in yourself, um, you tend to develop a sort of resistance to it. And it's only really most effective as long as we uh, know, not what we do. Right.
2: Absolutely. Well, and I know you've talked about it in in a past episode, but you know, that the scapegoat mechanism, which is the, um, is, is, is the ultimate sort of manifestation of mimetic contagion does not work. If it's, if, if people are aware of it, you know, it, it can only be seen in hindsight. And I think you're right. Um, You know, mimetic desire is the same way. Um, It's, we sort of diffuse its power over us when we, when we are aware of it. Interestingly enough though, um, I was surprised to have heard a couple of people that I've, that I've talked to recently who basically said um, I stoke mimetic rivalry with my competitors. Right. Like I, I, you know, intentionally choose somebody else that's out there. Um, I pin their face up next to my desk. Um, I keep track of their wins and I compete them and it fuels me. Right. And, and even after they become aware of, of how this works. Right. Um, and they view it as, as um, you know, a competitive advantage or something like that. Um, uh, and I don't know how that's going to turn out, but you know, I, I, I do think that um, you know, some people can tend to, uh, to try to use it, to, to, to motivate themselves sometimes uh, not something that I would recommend. Um, but I, but I, because I, I think that it changes its nature. Um, once you became aware, once you become aware of it. Um,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Dostoevsky because it's really, it's not just the eternal husband, right? If you go through, uh, gosh, like his first book, poor folk, you, even the double is like a different version of it, obviously more psychological, but a lot of his early work all involves love triangles, which is sort of, especially from a literary standpoint, kind of the, the most, like the way you can draw this process, like the most starkly, right. Is in a love triangle. Cause what you said, like, if I have a girlfriend and I think Gerard probably in multiple places actually uses this exact example where, you know, I have a girlfriend and you're my best friend, Luke. And, uh, you know, I kind of want you to like also be attracted to her because if she's, if you're not, then that's kind of saying like, well, maybe she's like diminished in value, ba- you know, in my friend's eyes over here, He doesn't think she's good enough to like, want to be with but then, of course, as soon as I notice that that desire exists, then it creates a sense of rivalry, which doesn't exist, as you know, as well. And Gerard talk does, doesn't Gerard talk about how, you know, um, all or most mimetic uh, process kind of tends toward bad m- mm-hmm. mimesis? How does that process work exactly? It, I mean, I guess the context I just gave is one way that it works, but
0: mm-hmm.
2: it, it tends towards n- negative mimesis. Um because it can start out in a non-rivalrous way and then turn, turn into that. Um, we can draw so many different examples. I mean, Dostoevsky, all of Dostoevsky's work, especially his later work, is filled with this. Shakespeare is filled with it. So anybody interested in taking a, a dive into Girard, if you also like literature and you like Shakespeare, Theatre of Envy is a masterful work that Girard wrote. You'll never read a Shakespearean play the same way again. Um, you know, Two Gentlemen of Verona. It's about this. Um, Othello. It's about this. Iago is the mediator of desire, who is manipulating everybody in that story. Um, Satan to himself. Want what he yeah. wants them to so want. brilliant. <laughs> Satan himself, and, and all of Shakespeare is like this, right? So it's like Gerard gives you like X-ray glasses to read Shakespeare, um, to read the Bible. Um, you you know that. So you know in in everyday life, um, you know, I'm thinking of an instance where mimetic desire can be um, uh, you can contend towards negative. I I think the easiest example would be, uh, somebody who is a mentor to, 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 you, right? So there are two kinds of models. There's one that's inside of a world. There's one that's outside of a world and they can change and move from one world to the other world. So somebody who's, let's say a PhD student, um, you know, doing their dissertation under uh, a, a well-known professor at a university, um, maybe one who, who has an ego, I won't name any names. Um, and uh, as soon as that doctoral student, um, you know, gets their PhD, um, now all of a sudden they've entered into the same world, right? Where now they're both competing for citations and for recognition in the public sphere, and they they have they had moved from what could have been like a positive, um, mimetic situation where it's like oh I look up to this person he's respected he's got a great work ethic, work ethic he's smart and you know and that that pushes us on to now competing for the same things and and the, the very same relationship that may have been a healthy mentor mentee relationship can very quickly move into one um, that that's negative and, and, and rivalrous. And yeah, I, I think this happens yeah. all the time. I think people move between these two worlds. Well, you see that, um, uh, one example uh, that I've got some
1: familiarity with, you see it in a lot of, uh, toxic martial arts schools where, you know, you'll have the instructor there who maybe he was a great fighter back in the day, he competed, maybe he was a champion, but now he's an instructor. He runs his own school. He has all the, he has to teach classes, you know, all the things that go along with that. But a lot of the people he's teaching. Are actively fighting, they're competing, they're out there getting after it and stuff. And it develops to this point where like, you know, maybe he hasn't actually fought in 10 years, his people are out there, you know, grinding hard training for fights, going out and fighting. And it develops a thing where he almost knows on some level that like this student of mine could probably kick my ass if it came down to it but he's the teacher, he's the instructor. And so you have to maintain a certain, you know, a certain air about yourself and a certain level of authority. And it can very often lead to a sort of oppressive environment between the instructor and the students in that way. I think that's another, cause, cause what they're really trying to do, right. Those students are trying to honor him in the most direct way possible by imitating him and being like him. Right. And yeah, that's where it leads.
2: I think this is where any professional athlete who's getting later in their career struggles with this, right? Like you're retiring from, you know, the NBA or the NFL, uh, who are your new models? You've only had, you've only, you've only had other models that the you know, other professional athletes as models your whole life. And now you're not one, yeah. um, you know, and I think not, not only in sports though, I think like a, as, as we get older, um, as we go through different seasons of our life, you know, we, we can't hang on to, to, to certain things, right. You're learning to transition to
1: that mentor role is probably a huge part of like, you know, at least when you reach middle age, for sure, of, of doing that in a way that's going to be healthy for you. Absolutely. Um, how do you, I was going to put this a little bit later, but I, I, I want to jump into this because one of the big questions on my mind is how do you think the internet and especially social media has, well, like, do you think it's accelerated this process or transformed it in some Like really fundamental way. I mean, because it seems for sure to have vastly expanded the range of mimetic pressures that we're subject to. But I mean, you know, obviously, like you know, the famous example is Peter Thiel, uh, the first outside investor in Facebook. He saw what they were doing, and he was a student of Girard's at Stanford, and he immediately recognized, and he attributes it to that to that experience with Girard, what it was that was going on here. I have a friend uh, named uh, he's written about Girard a lot. Really, really smart guy on, on this topic, uh, named, uh, Brian Francis Culkin, who, um, he called, he called Twitter a digital human sacrifice temple. And I think when he said that, I was like, wow, that really is, what Twitter is in a lot of ways. It's kind of, it's kind of like a mechanism for, for uh, identifying scapegoats, generating mobs around them and then, and then attacking, and then, you know, making that a a repeating process over and over. What are you, what are your thoughts on how digital technology has changed all this?
2: I've been thinking a lot about this lately because John Height just had a long essay in the Atlantic and he's got a book coming out about this and I'm, I'm getting um, my, my position on this has changed. I, I, I hear a lot of the same things, right? It's like, there's this nonstop dopamine hit. Um, so, you know, you need more and more, um, you know, there are epistemic structures, um, Twitter being one of them And by epistemic structure. I mean, the institutions that, that generate or mediate knowledge and, you know, that, that Twitter is a particularly, um, uh, Bad structure for that, because it's just one thing after another, one tweet after another, and you know we sit with one for a couple of seconds, maybe maybe a couple of minutes, and we read the replies or we engage with it, then we move on to the next one. And they're disparate; they're not connected. There's there's not a lot of continuity between them. I mean, I guess if somebody has a body of work that underlays their, their, what they're messaging out there. There's someplace deeper to go, but for most tweets there, there's, they're thin is the way that I would, I would use they're they're thin. There's just not a lot there. So we, we, it's like porn. Like we, we look at one. I like what I see. And now I need something else. And that to me, um, quite frankly, it goes back to this, this word achadia that I was talking about where it's, 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 it's sort of a thin reality where there's, there's not a lot of sort of layers to sink down into. Um, and it makes it harder and harder to adhere to reality. Um, and there's, there's no continuity or connection or embeddedness um, in, a, in, a, in a culture, right? Like what's the culture of Twitter? I don't know. There's like thousands of subcultures on Twitter. Um, and now we're all talking about it because you and I are having this conversation a day after, um, you know, Twitter accepted Musk's offer. Right. So um, I don't think he's going to come in and save Twitter. Um, I think there I think there, there's a memetic problem at the root. You can't fix that. Um, that requires real um, uh, a, a, a changing our relationship um, with with the technology itself. And I do believe that Twitter is essentially a memetic accelerator. Um, because what it really is is a, a place where we go to find millions of people modeling various desires and various ideas and you know it's very good at stirring um, mimesis <laughs> and contagion um, making scapegoats. Um, cancel culture is 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 you know the scapegoat mechanism is the best explanation that I've ever heard for it um, and the, but the scapegoats don't work very well anymore. Um, they don't they don't last very long. They might last a day and then everybody's forgot about it and they've moved on to the next one. So it's like an arena. Um, it's like the new gladiatorial arena. Um, there's not enough, you know, people to sacrifice, you know, and we, they have to keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, you know, Trump was booted off Twitter and it's like, you know, I, I don't know, like people kind of, fr- I don't know. It's not, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. after. Well, right. Yeah, I cycle, think right? like,
1: you know, like, I think that's such a great point, because like, you know, when Trump was president, they couldn't quite get at him. They settled for substitutes like Nicholas Sandman or whoever the the scapegoat of the day was. And then they got Trump and they kicked him off Twitter and kind of purged him from the social environment. Uh, but obviously, like all of the pathologies that created the energy that led them to feel like they needed a scapegoat to purge like that still remained the day after he was gone. And now we've moved up to like geopolitical level where it's like Vladimir Putin and Russia is sort yeah. of the, the next level up. I mean, I don't think it's really um, outside the realm of plausibility that we could see a war one day started on Twitter, essentially, where the people of two nations just get into this mimetic frenzy and they build up hatred. And essentially, instead of the leaders sort of propagandizing their their people to lead them into a war the way we always kind of thought about it traditionally, that the people might actually drive reluctant leaders into a war against. I, I think that's entirely plausible.
2: I, I agree. I mean, think about how unsatisfying booting Trump off of Twitter ultimately seemed. It didn't seem to really satiate people for very long. Little, little while, right? People gloated, but it just didn't seem very satisfying, right? Because, because uh, they, they, we it need. It's an insatiable hunger. It's an, ins, it's an insatiable hunger, and I, I agree with Vladimir Putin, like. So we live in this very apocalyptic time where I was sitting there with this belief, like, you gotta be kidding me. This is how cancel culture ends with um, people on Twitter canceling Vladimir Putin and him nuking the U S and one of the, to tie this into Gerard, you know, Gerard speaks a lot and the Bible speaks about um, catacombs, which, which are essentially it's an institution or anything that restrains violence, something that that contains violence and restrains it. Um, so in the, you know, the crucifixion of Christ, right, the, the Bible basically says that, um, you know, I see Satan fall like lightning, right? The scapegoat mechanism that had been used was revealed for what it is, and it was no longer an effective catacon or restraint for violence so i see satan fall from you know fall, fall like lightning to the earth now he's unrestrained you know roaming around on earth and what do we have to restrain violence now well institutions developed we have institutions that do that and the big scandal of uh i think of, of christianity is that you know, crisis has taken so long to return, right? Like, how does, how is this all going to play out? Like unrestrained violence, the scapegoat mechanism doesn't work anymore. I think Girard himself um, would have been surprised at how well our institutions can contain violence, right? Um, probably be- better than anybody realized. And, you know, maybe that's why the end of the world feels so lame, like a Twitter cancellation of a world leader who has nuclear weapons, right? Um, but it's, but it's, these forces have been turned loose and i think we've got to be really careful because when people are are forming um when these contagious mobs are forming that are calling for geopolitical solutions and influencing um world leaders in, in, in ways to satiate them up. And we all know what happened when, when pilot did that, right? Um, you know, we, we just have to be careful and recognize the, the forces and the mechanisms at work. Um, and I do think we need to, we, we do need institutions that contain violence. Um, uh, but they're breaking down. They're, they're, they're all break. It seems like they're all breaking down.
1: Are are you connected at all to my friend uh, James Poulos of the Claremont Institute? He's somebody you should be connected to if you're not, for sure. I'd love to place you guys in dialogue one of these days.
2: Um, I I, I know James. I I wrote for uh, Return. Great. Okay. Oh, great. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah, That's right. That's right. Okay. Cool. Uh, Well, that's that's great. Awesome. You know his book, Human Forever. I don't know if you had an opportunity to read it yet. Um, It's excellent. I just wrote a review for it for Claremont Review of Books, and he talks about in his book um, how the advent of digital and specifically, you know, digital telecommunications technology um, has brought about a disaster in the sense that not that digital technology itself is a disaster, but it's brought about a disaster in the same sense that Virilio meant it when he said that every new technology brings with it into the world, a new kind of disaster. You know, you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck and so forth. And in a nutshell, this digital disaster he describes is that we've, plugged ourselves into the internet in uh, such an intimate way that, you know, we've essentially become primitive, very primitive cyborgs, something that might become less primitive if like Elon Musk's Neuralink ever goes operational. And by doing that, we have plunged ourselves into this mimetic environment that is governed largely by algorithms and swarms of bots that have imperatives that are based on the structure of the technology. And so like last year, for example, in July, uh, I had Tucker Carlson read one of my Twitter threads on the air. And I went from like 7,000 followers to 120,000 followers pretty much overnight. Uh, Before that happened... And I'm somebody who's read Gerard and has thought, like, for years, I've thought about Gerard a lot, consider him a very heavy influence. But before that happened, my followers were all fans of my history podcast, and I would post a lot about history and related topics. When I got all these new followers who found me on a political basis, because Tucker had read that thread, uh, you know, um without ever sitting down and thinking to myself, you know, well, I have this new audience and I need to adjust my content to meet their expectations or whatever. I just found myself kind of making minor adjustments that when they accumulate over time, uh, result in me basically posting about politics pretty much all the time and doing it in a way that, um, you know, maybe represent my my opinion on a given issue, but which very often are in a tone that is not really the kind of energy that I want to be putting out in the world or the kind of person I want to be for that matter. And so, uh, and then of course, that leaks back in the other direction, right? I'm, I'm I'm only posting about politics on Twitter and often in a nasty or sarcastic tone. But then I notice that when I'm offline with my friends or family, I'm talking about politics a lot more and often bringing that same tone. And then I'm even thinking about politics more and experiencing More negative emotions over it than I was previously. And so, you know, this is something people have always dealt with, you know, you have certain values, or you want to be a certain kind of person, but you fall into a friend group whose approval requires you to behave differently, you know, than than that ideal, and you find yourself adjusting to their demands. But to come back to the, the digital disaster that James describes, in the online environment, I'm not just adjusting to a group of friends. But to an environment that is profoundly shaped by algorithms and bots, and people influenced by algorithms and bots, whose imperative, whose only imperative, is to drive engagement, which very often means creating and amplifying conflict, and, and like it's something. And again, this is I'm somebody who who has read Girard for years, and I feel like I've been profoundly influenced by him. But it is um, it is extraordinarily uh, difficult to, to to get away from it. You know, you have like the the Buddhist Four Noble Truths. And the first three are that uh, you know suffering is is a constituent element of of human life, and the second one is that um, the cause of suffering is craving or desire, and then the third is that craving or desire uh, it can be eliminated. And man, maybe it can like if you're the Buddha, but it seems like uh, it seems like we have to find maybe a, um, a another way to work with it rather than eliminate it for, for most of us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have read James book um, and it's one of the things that strik- strikes me with um, a lot of the things that he's talking about is, is how the online world, especially those that are extremely online, there's leakage into the real world as you're describing in your life. And, you know, the same thing is true for me. Um, my wife lets me know about that when she sees it happening, She's extraordinarily sensitive to those kinds of things, how I'm affected. And the problem with the, the, the online world, uh, you know, Heidegger talked about this decades ago, right. In, in his, his really famous article, um, on technology. Um, he said that, that we're sort of enmeshed in technology and all of our solutions to escape this predicament are in them. There are also technological. So in, in a way, you know, we're slaves to, to technology. And so when he said his famous, seems like only a God can say this right line. Um, and the, 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 the I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I certainly don't think it's um, Elon Musk coming in and just like sort of making the, the algorithm open source or something like that because I think fundamentally the problems are um, at the, are mimetic, right? And you can't you can't there's no top down way. I mean, maybe you can do some things that ha- um, have sort of a, a, a less, A structure that doesn't incentivize mimesis as much okay like i'll I'll fully admit that but i think that the the, these are profoundly human problems and one of the things that i see happening online especially on twitter is like a mimetic escalation of abstractions and rhetoric think about how abstract so much of Twitter is right. Like the meme culture, you know, it's like, like better and better memes. I mean, I found myself all very self-referential and yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's just, it's a world of, of abstractions that um, I think were generated online and then, and then escalating rhetoric, right. There's been studies that have shown that you get people in your backyard for a, a beer and they're, they're not nearly as extreme as they sound online, right? Because sure. you need to be noticed, right? But the, 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 the abstractions that happen online where it's like, what are we even talking about anymore? And, you know, you forget that I think has spilled out into the real world. I think this, if I see it in the classroom, I see it among my friends, like, you know, a- abstractions, right? When it comes to everything from, um, geez, I mean, like, uh, like sexuality to, to like, um, I don't know like like crazy political sort of like concepts that are super abstract um, you know that represent like these ideas, and it's like, well, how does this have any bearing on on reality right? And we could go on podcasts and talk for like eight hours about some of these things, and i I think that's been fueled by this online sort of culture of like I just call it an, an escalation to the extremes of abstractions is the way that I think about it
1: um. It's this quote from uh, Jean Paul Sartre. Uh, He says, before that projection of the self, nothing exists. He's kind of talking about something he had just mentioned. Before that projection of the self, nothing exists, not even in the heaven of intelligence. Man will only attain existence when he is what he purposes to be, not however what he may wish to be. For what we usually understand by wishing or willing. Is a conscious decision taken more often than not after we have made ourselves what we are? I may wish to join a party, to write a book, or to marry, but in such a case, what is usually called my will is probably a manifestation of a prior and more spontaneous decision. If, however, it is true that existence is prior to essence, man is responsible for what he is. And so he's putting forth, obviously, this famous uh, existentialist idea of kind of radical responsibility You know, very simple example of it would be if I choose to join the army, um, that decision obviously doesn't take place in a vacuum. The decision to join the army was a manifestation of maybe certain values I hold regarding patriotism or national service. There's that, there's a Heideggerian element of of thrownness to it, right. Or, or maybe to take a, um, to play off of the title, one of Sartre's plays, um, that by the time you come to that decision point, the chips are already down. Um, but but even the fact that so so my decision to join the army is informed by maybe these certain values that i hold but those values have meaning for me because i've made the decision or many decisions over time to place myself into a social context where those values would actually have meaning and be reinforced but then why did i place myself in that context um it's well eventually you get down to because at some point i made this more fundamental decision about what kind of person i to be basically, what kind of person to be. And when you, um, when you, when you pull back to that, I, I don't know if level of abstraction is necessarily the, the, the right term for it, but that deeper level, um, you're talking about a choice that doesn't, you know, you're not thinking what kind of person uh, should I be on a moment by moment basis. And yet that, that question and that decision that you've made uh, informs all the decisions that shape uh, your daily, your, the daily decisions that you take. Um, what I find kind of interesting about it is, uh, any kind of deep decision about what kind of person you want to be is not something that you're really going to arrive at conceptually. Um, it's going to be based on models, which you have witnessed in the real world or maybe in fiction or or whatever history models that you've witnessed and want to imitate. Um, even if you can conceptualize all of it, uh, and explain it in terms of concepts you're only explicating the details of something that first came to you as, as a imitative model um, and so you know it It seems like uh you know a arra- part of part of uh arranging life um uh, arranging a kind of life that doesn't introduce so much ambivalence that it weighs us down or tears us apart is trying to make sure that these desires that operate at different levels are not working at cross purposes you know so like i'm a late gen xer some people say early millennial but i kind of identify as a gen xer a little bit more and so uh, you know gen xers we are influenced by the model of the rebel or the anti-hero and so that informs my general sense of what kind of a person i want to be but then i also want to be a good student because i want to get into a, un- a good university uh, but my prior desire to be rebellious or nonconformist Um, influences which peer group I want recognition from. And so maybe that peer group is not one that values getting good grades or, um, you know, and and, and so as you subject yourself to that social group's mimetic process to satisfy the desire to be rebellious, um, you're subverting your desire to actually get into a good university and have a successful life and the career that interests you and so forth. It seems like having these desires that operate at different levels out of alignment is probably the cause of a lot of pain and frustration and that finding a way to bring them into alignment might be, uh, an important, uh, an important part of the solution to having a life that's not so painful and frustrating.
2: Mm. Man, um, you know, I'm thinking back to the the period in my life that I described at the beginning of the episode. And, um, I certainly didn't, didn't stand there and say, I have this model of who I want to be, um, I, I didn't quite frankly.
1: Well, but models um, were presented to you in one way or another that, um, that had like emotional valence. Right. And that's kind
2: of how it really, how it right. Well, so, I mean, so I'm going to riff a little bit here on, on, on discernment and sort of like becoming, I think who we are. Um, cause it, I didn't intentionally pick one. I couldn't find, so here I was, right. I, I said, all right. Um, I, I need to, um, I need to embed myself in something, and it's the I need to be standing on solid ground in order to take a step forward here and I sort of had embedded myself in a certain tradition and in a certain culture, even though um, I couldn't find an example or a model of a Christian or specifically a Catholic that I wanted to be like I couldn't find a single one um, other than historical examples right <laughs> but still i'm not you know I live in you know I lived in twenty 2010 at that point. Right. Um, so I was like, you know, this is going to have to be, there are models that I can adopt, but I basically, I need, I need to, to move forward, um, on this path, even though my, my aim is not entirely clear. I sort of am standing on solid ground and I'm moving in this direction. I don't know if I'm going to stay here, um, and in fact, I didn't. I, I left that that particular pathway in life. But the point is that I needed one to to, to move down, right? Um, for some people, it might be the military, right? For me, it was a seminary. I was grounded in something, and this, incidentally, is exactly what the you know the the Desert Fathers said was the was the antidote to a They they literally said that it was this bearing a yoke. Is the word that they used, right? It's, it was bearing a yoke and taking on yourself the burden of reality, right? This is <laughs> I love it, um, yeah. the unbearable lightness of being, right? Milan Kundera. That this is the theme of the book, the unbearable lightness of being. Can we bear a yoke? Can we bear the yoke of reality? And you know, if you remember, it, you know, in that book, if you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, Kundera was a was a Girardian, by the way, is a Girardian still alive? Oh. Yeah, that makes um, sense. I guess. Okay. Yeah.
1: And, and- when he was
2: exiled, when he was exiled in Paris, he read Girard. Um, He's Czech, and this book is um, very Girardian in nature. So you have this protagonist who's kind of a womanizer, and um, you know he sort of made it a practice to never spend the night. Right. So sleep with the woman, and he'll leave by the next morning. Um, and, you know, one, one of his conquests, he sort of accidentally falls asleep, if I'm remembering correctly. And there's this powerful moment where he wakes up and she's clinging onto his hand. And then Kundra in his, like, his, his, his style, which I love, will just go on this beautiful, like, philosophical reflection uh, about the heaviness of being, right? And he's, he feels his hand clinging to his. And it's like, you know, can you bear the weight of this particular reality? So. I, I view that protagonist as having suffered from the same thing that I did in, in a different form, right? I was never never quite like that, but um, in a different form. He's unsatisfied with everything, right? Um, he wasn't willing to bear the yoke of, of, of reality, of any kind of discipline, um, of responsibility for other people. And that's this is what the whole book is all about. And that is, in a sense, that is the antidote. And it was for me. And I, I went a very peculiar path, but I, I took that on and, you know, I, I, I had to, I couldn't detach. I was like, I can't detach myself from social responsibilities from the, the thing, you know, the, 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 the response, the reality in my life, I can't pretend to ignore it and to float around satisfying this desire. And then the next one, I lived all over the world. I did pretty much whatever I wanted um, and I wasn't bearing any of that weight and, that is i think this is kind of how we how we begin to become who we are is by uh, you know christians say you know carrying your cross um, or you know bearing the weight of the reality that you happen to be in right in whatever time and place you're in right now you know you have the weight of reality to adhere to and and to carry um and probably your responsibility to, to some other human being i think to the extent to which we do that um, we sort of naturally, um, it's kind of this idea of, you know, the more we forget about ourselves and go outside of ourselves, the more we end up knowing ourselves. Um, and that was the case for me, as opposed to me sitting back and having identified of some very specific model. Um, because it was a little it was a little bit more complex than that.
1: Do you think um, you know, when when you were saying that just now, it came to my head was uh, you know, every generation, the young people um tend to be kind of radical, maybe tend to be kind of revolutionary, right? You look back at the way, you know, back in the late sixties, people were looking at the college generation and being like, when these people take over, like civilization's going to come to an end, right? Obviously. But what happens is those people then uh, eventually accept some kind of a yoke, you know, by hook or by crook, they do it. They, they, they get out of college. They have a career, they get married, they have kids, They buy a house in a community. And so now all of a sudden they have this whole context that kind of gives, um, you know, gives meaning to uh, behaviors that provide weight on them. It provides that anchoring weight on them. Right. And that today for, you know, a a plethora of just social and demographic and economic reasons, um, uh, you know, advancements in healthcare that are prolonging the baby boomers life, all sorts of things is you have a, you have a generation now like millennials um, who, uh, you know, they're in their mid thirties, late thirties, and they're not buying houses yet. They're record low levels of getting married and having kids. And so you kind of have a generation that is just sort of floating and not acquiring those organic anchors that you sort of normally pick up as you go through that stage of your life. And that they may be clinging out, you know, trying to grab on to like any rock or any, anything they can grab tree branch that they can grab onto that seems like it's going to give them some sort of solidity and anchoring. and You know, maybe that's a social justice movement or some other kind of, uh, you know, I- I real extreme political orientation, something like that. But, um, it seems to, yeah, that, that's what came into my head when you were saying that. And so we kind of do have a generation right now that does feel like it's floating and is not acquiring those anchors that, that you normally do.
2: I think that's, um, it's a great point. And I think that's why there's such attraction, um, to certain movements, um, I mean, there's certainly a, a solidarity aspect to it, right? I mean, people would rather be long wrong than be alone. Um, uh, I really believe that, right? And um, you know people people want something heroic to fight for, um, especially young people, you know they're 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 craving something heroic. they're craving sacrifice. They are craving discipline. Um, you know even if they don't articulate that, um, I just spoke to a couple hundred high school kids last week, um, and I, I've never had such engagement. It's been years since I've had that kind of engagement. We talked about thin and thick desires. and No sooner than those words had come out of my mouth than their eyes just lit up. They were on the edge of their seats, and I went an hour over time answering questions and engaging with them. By thin desires, I mean yeah, the medic, that. highly fleeting ones, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, those mimetic, highly fleeting ones that are here today, gone, gone tomorrow, like in infatuation, right. There's nothing real or solid underlying those things. There's no real value there. There's nothing real, um, you know, and thick desires being the kinds that you can cultivate, right. Like great love, you know, for your spouse or something. Um, they understood immediately. And I think they are craving some heroic thing to sacrifice and pour their lives out for. And they're, um, you know, people are coming to them with cheap substitutes for that and, and they're accepting it because, you know, they, 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 haven't been proposed a better model, I guess. Right. And it's, it's sort of up, it's up to, uh, leaders, right. To good leaders to, to be able to propose the, the, you know, these transcendent models to them, the kind of things that do, um, represent a positive, um, yoke and at least give their life structure, not to determine it, but just to give them, to give them structure And I mean, they're so hungry for it Um, in a way it's, it's, it's scary because I I think, you know, when you're, when you're starving for meaning, you'll eat the first thing that somebody puts on your plate and, and, you know, the, the, that the thin desires can be incredibly attractive and illusory. Um, And um, ultimately, you know, unless they're grounded in something real, Um, that, you know, when I, when I, when I say real, I mean, something that's sort of rooted in, um, human fulfillment, right. In in just an understanding of human nature. Unfortunately, human nature has become like an unknowable X, right. most people would, you know, deny that there is such a thing as human nature that we can know. I think there is. So that's what I'm speaking about. Right. Um, they'll, they'll just tend to, to, to suffer from a very similar ailment that I did.
1: There's this great book written back in the early 60s by a British guy named Douglas Hyde. It's called Dedication and Leadership. It's very short, like maybe a hundred page book. And Douglas Hyde was a guy who was kind of, he was a high ranking member of the British Communist Party for about 20, 25 years. And he left, you know, he's the editor of the Daily Worker. So he was like, he was up there. He's an important guy. Um, And he left the party in 1948 and became a Catholic. And he's the, the book is writ, is based on some talks that he gave to a bunch of Catholic lay leaders in the early 60s about things that, you know, for all of their ideological or, or whatever uh, problems that the communists from an organizational standpoint and the way they uh, interact with their and develop their personnel, the things that they do right, and that he felt that the church at the time and churches everywhere of all denominations were getting wrong. And that first thing that he brings up and the last thing he he brings up at the very end to drive it home is that with the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, the churches, for the most part, took the lesson that, uh, you know, there's so much out there in the culture that we're competing with now. We can't place a lot of demands on people or they're going to leave. And he said what the communists understood perfectly well that that is the opposite of the truth. And that, in fact, um, you know, he said that a lot of the most motivated and the best people in the British Communist Party that he knew were all were, were people very often who, had gone to the church first looking for uh, what they ended up finding in the communist party. But when they got to the church and said, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm motivated. Like I am ready to just rock and roll, give my life, whatever they would be told, you know, Oh, that's awesome. We're we're very happy to hear that. Um, You know, why don't you show up a half hour early before the service and you can help set up the chairs. And they just, that, just that, that need was just not satisfied. And then they show up to the communist party. And, uh, you know, the question is like, how much energy you got, how much time you got, we will fill all of it, we will place as much of a burden and responsibility on you as you can possibly handle and then teach you that you can probably uh, handle even more than that. And they would drive their people very hard. And it didn't drive people away, it it bonded people together and drew them in. And I think we're kind of seeing that now, right, you have like a lot of young uh americans who um are are going back to christianity and there's this kind of trend that you see a lot out there is that they're going to catholicism and they're going to orthodoxy because they kind of um you know i think they perceive it as as being a a, a little bit less you know like like liberal small l style like in the sense that it is like going to place more
2: demands on them and
1: give them more structure
2: yeah, but they're not they're not just going back to any churches though. Um I mean I can speak for the Catholic Church because I'm still Catholic. Um they're going to the ones that are more orthodox, that have yeah. the beautiful liturgies, and the ones that don't don't present or represent the journey of faith as being as being reduced to mere social justice like come here and you can serve donuts and drink coffee after mass, right? Like nobody, that doesn't satisfy anybody's deep desires. But when they hold out um, the goal of sanctity um, and sainthood and, and and right that journey, um, that is the, an incredibly difficult, challenging, um, beautiful thing to embark on. And that is attractive. That is attractive. Um, and, you know, sort of um, one of my favorite heroes and a model for me uh, when I was actually going down this path, I wanted to be a chaplain. And uh, one of my models was father Vincent Capadano, who served in Vietnam. Uh, he was a chaplain and, you know, he, he gave his life um, shielding guys and giving last rights on the battlefield. Um, and he was an inc- he sacrificed himself. I mean, he was, he was a martyr um, in the true sense of the word. Um, and uh, he was protecting victims and, he he was a model for me, and his, he's got a fantastic book that talks about his journey, and it it, it was exactly what you just said. Um, you know, he sort of was was lamenting that um, that there wasn't sort of a model of of heroism um, that he could he could find, um, and he he sort of found it in in the military, but he was somehow able to to see how that mapped on and translated to his life, his spiritual life, right? And he was able to see how he could he could find that same energy to pour out uh, in, into his life. And he said, he, you know, he didn't want to become like the World War II pilots that uh, had to make heroic decisions and do things on a daily basis. After the war, they came back, um, you know, they went back to the UK and they came back to the US and a lot of them struggled, because they were not able to find opportunities in their everyday life to exercise that kind of discipline or, 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 or heroism. Unless they realized that they could, they just had to do it in very different ways.
1: Yeah, there's that great final scene in that movie, The Hurt Locker. If you've seen that, where you have this guy who's a he's an EOD technician, he's like over there defusing bombs in combat under fire, where every decision you make, you know, red wire, or blue wire, could be life or death. Like everything matters. And then he comes home. His wife wants him to come home. He wants to please his wife. He comes back and he's there and like, she sends him to the store and he goes into the cereal aisle and he just looks up and there's a hundred cereals looks down and there's a hundred cereals. And he just eventually gets overwhelmed and leaves without any cereal and goes home. And then the next scene, he's getting off a plane and he's back in Iraq. And, um, you know, the, I guess the trick maybe is that is learning that you can, uh, find ways to, to, to really actively and energetically engage with, what people think of as the mundane things of daily life, you know, of having a good family and a strong uh, cohesive household and these things you really can't. And even, even if you have a job that, you know um, you just, you go to an office and you turn in TPS reports all day or whatever, like office space that you can actually under most circumstances engage with that task in a way that doing it well, will bring some kind of meaning to your life. I mean, I think that's kind of what is behind the, you know, why, why Jordan Peterson's thing about clean your room, Uh, It resonates with people so much, you know, is that even with something like that, and especially maybe something like that, if you're in a place where you really are kind of just feel like you're floating through life and, and don't have a lot of agency, that if you just apply yourself and engage with any task at all, it'll start to get that ball rolling a little bit.
2: Mm, yeah, I mean, that I, I do think that that's, that's why what he's talking about resonates, you know, um, not just cleaning your room and making your bed, um, you know, that whole first minute of the day the, is, is a heroic minute. Um, it's the first your first minute of consciousness where you get to make a decision. You know, you get to make a decision, um, if you're going to get up, um, and how you're going to spend that first minute, you know, and it, and it does uh, color the rest of the day. Um, and I, you know, it's incredible. There's so many ways to to exercise, this in today's culture and one of them and it's because it's work and I I mean it it's hard work is to resist the easy path of mimetic contagion it's work to do that Um, and it actually is a heroic effort um, to to stand outside of that it's easy to follow the crowd and the mob It's hard work and it can somehow set you outside of them, make you the object of ridicule or questions and make you feel lonely um, if you think for yourself. Um, If you if you stop for a minute and act with intentionality, um, as opposed to the knee jerk reaction, um, it's always going to be harder. Um, These things, you know, they may not seem as important as, um, you know, some some rescuing somebody in a battle. Uh, but in fact, in, in a different sense, that's that it 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 it's exactly what you're doing in some cases. Right. Um, it could this could be something that affects the rest of somebody's life. You know, I'm just thinking of some of the nasty things that play out uh, in the culture and, and online. Um, so maybe, you know, that's that's also a good place to start. Right.
1: Yeah. I think about like, you know, you see uh, with everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. I mean, it's I'll tell you, like. This happens to me over and over. And I, I swear I'm just like, I must have some inherent naivety in like the way I think about things because again, like I'm somebody who's read Girard for a long time, thought about this stuff, very familiar with the idea of uh mimetic escalation and so forth. And yet when something happens like we're seeing recently, where I mean, pretty much overnight, there's not just a consensus built up that Vladimir Putin's a bad guy or that Russia's an aggressive state, but that like it's it's actually good to be uh, canceling Russian kids from competing in the Paralympics, or just this extreme like scapegoating—that's uh, even targeting substitutes who aren't directly result. Every time something like that happens, I'm I'm shocked by it, even though I really should not be shocked by it. But I I, I end up reverting, you know, to that and 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 being surprised by it. Look, and, one of the um, things, yeah, go well,
2: ahead. just one one point on that. I mean, the the mimetic contagion has a relationship to epistemology and and the, the way that we view the truth. It's really important, and I, I, I think that's not very well understood, um, even with people that have read Girard. And you see it in the story of Apollonius of Tiana, right? Um, I won't retell the whole story, uh, but he basically, um, you know, singles out a scapegoat and encourages a mimetic mob to stone a blind beggar. And you know, they don't want to do it. They're like, "This is a blind beggar. Well, you don't want us to stone him." Um, but in the process of stoning him, this is really important to understand in the process of stoning him, they, they forget that they didn't want to do it. And he is literally, this is the, the myth I think is important to understand here because it represents the truth. He, he is literally transformed into a demon with blazing fiery red eyes. When they are done stoning him and the rocks piles come off, what they find underneath is, is like a demon. All right. And for me, this represents the, the way that the truth is distorted through mimetic contagion. It's almost like you thinking physics, right? Like the way that like gravity bends space and time. The mimesis can, can distort and bend the truth. And then the stories we tell um, cover it up even more and more and, and more. And this is why, you know, the narratives and the stories are, are so... Uh, can, can, are, are so important to get to the bottom of right where do they come from um, what are they trying to conceal um and 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 so the the mimesa, it's not just that we do things that we maybe wouldn't normally do if we didn't have a mimetic model or a crowd of mimetic models it's literally that we convince ourselves completely that something is the case or that this person is guilty or that we blame this, I don't know, Russian Paralympic athlete or something like that, we have utterly convinced ourselves because the mimesis has affected our perception of the truth.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you can, you talk about people looking for ways to, 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 to find that sense of heroism or, or meaning in everyday life. And that it's actually very often right there, if you want to look for it, I mean, it's kind of a good example where, um, you know, just honestly like it's maybe tapering off a little bit right now but certainly in the first few weeks like just to be and i can tell you this from firsthand experience just to be the person who stands up in public and says yeah i don't i I think this is crazy like what they're doing with the paralympic athletes or that all of this is going way too far um that you people get very upset about that as people in mobs tend to do uh toward anybody who tries to calm them down you know um but like we were talking about earlier i mean this is something that you know, we're, we're nose to nose with a nuclear power. And so maybe, you know, enough people sort of saying like, Hey, <laughs> nobody's saying Vladimir Putin's innocent. That's the thing about most scapegoats, right? And it's maybe the reason the gospel story like is was so effective is that you have Jesus who's just a purely innocent scapegoat. Most scapegoats, you look at like the first victims of the Salem witch craze or something, um, are people who they might be not witches. They're not innocent or they're innocent of the specific charge of being the the sole cause of all the suffering and, and chaos in the community maybe, but it is like an old woman who lives outside of town who nobody really likes because she's just crotchety old hag who's always giving people trouble. And so she's not innocent in that sense. And it makes it very easy for that person to transform into a demon once that starts to take hold. And you look at, I mean, it kind of applies with Putin, right? Cause like, you can make this case like, Oh, we're scapegoating Russians or Russia. And they can point to a lot of real things. About Vladimir Putin or the Russian political system that, you know, in their mind, justify it. And all of those things are are obviously true for the most part. Um, Yeah. And so it makes it a lot easier to, to make that transition.
2: Uh, well, and, and in fact, the the guiltier a person is, the more effective that they can stand in for the guilt of everybody else and the better a mm. scapegoat they make. And I confused a lot of people and, and you know, I caught I had a, a lot of negative comments because I basically pointed out that I think Elizabeth Holmes has sort of served the role of, of a scapegoat. She's served that kind of function. I think Gaddafi did. And, you know, in Libya and people's first reaction, like, well, these are not good people, <laughs> you know, um, and I'm like, I know. But that yeah. doesn't matter. Right. And, and in, in some sense, the fact that they're clearly guilty of some of, of, of some transgressions actually makes them a more effective scapegoat because it's easier for us to just have them stand in for, for everybody else that was involved.
1: Yeah. Like I, you know, I, I said in um, I think in one of my one of my episodes about Jim Jones, I said that, uh, you know, everybody's heard the saying uh, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out to get you, but that actually goes the other way too. It's just because they're out to get you doesn't mean that you're not suffering from a paranoid personality complex. And it kind of goes, you know, just because uh, a person is guilty doesn't mean that you're not scapegoating them and kind of the same thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The process,
2: the process mm-hmm. can be detached from, you know, the, the guilt or innocence and take on a complete life of its own.
1: The um, the author uh, Timur Koran, has this concept he calls preference falsification, which is just what it sounds like. It's basically when people due to uh, social pressure in the moment might say that they like a certain piece of contemporary art, even though they really don't understand it or think it's ugly or or whatever. Um, Or you could think of like Havel's Green Grocer, or uh, maybe the ultimate example is Peter's denial of Christ. And so Kran says, this is kind of part of the big thesis of the book, that when people are put into a position where they feel compelled to falsify their true preferences to meet the expectations of others, that it generates a measure of resentment and internal resistance, uh, not to mention self-loathing for having had to engage in that deception. And that if this builds up sufficiently in an individual or in a political community, uh, it, it can actually lead to a backlash. Um, do you think there's a, this sort of reflexivity at work where sometimes rather than simply absorbing the desires of the people around us, um, you know, people who we at least accord enough authority to feel the need to falsify our preferences for them, that instead we feel the impulse to resist? And and, and maybe this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, how uh, once you recognize it, then a sort of, you know, as as something as like a pressure that's being imposed upon you, that then you do
2: sort of start to resist it.
1: Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I guess that's why I said that I liked Radiohead when I was in high school, even though I never listened to him. It's just like, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm supposed to say, actually. Um, yeah, and and th- I think this is really fascinating. I mean, obviously, in our political environment, um, the idea that um, feeling compelled to be deceptive, um, maybe for good reasons, right, to keep your job or something like that, generates resentment. Um, that's that's a really powerful idea, and I think it's true. I mean, I I, I know that it happens. Um, I, it's happened to me, um, and I I'm always a little ashamed of myself after I do something like that. And I think um, I mean, not to go back to Jordan Peterson again, but I think this is why he, he when he says you know you speak the truth, um, and and you know you 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 deal with the consequences of, of speaking the truth, it is really important to do that, um, you know, to live with that sense of integrity and, and discipline where the truth is a higher value, um, to us. Right. And, um, I think it's the only way to ultimately, um, defeat the resentment. Um, we, I think we have a politics of resentment. I think both sides are guilty of it. Um, and, and, you don't want to, you don't want to be a resentful person. And this is what the underground man is. Dostoevsky's notes from the underground, right? It's just a highly resentful man whose mimetic desires have went to the underground. Um, And I think if, if you get in the habit and it's so easy to do um, of placating people um, and not being honest about who you are, uh, uh, what you think, if you, if you can't feel it, you can speak freely. The resentment happens. And the only antidote is speaking the truth. This is why, uh, shortly, you know, January of 2020, um, I wrote a long sub stack about, you know, the Twitter ban. And I was like, you know, this, th- what's going to happen is that this is going to, this is going to generate all kinds of resentment that it has to go somewhere, right? The energy, the resentment is real. And it's just not eliminated because you don't see somebody on the platform. Um, all kinds of things are happening in the underground and they will surface eventually yeah uh, and that
1: and that's always the case one of the thing like the the way I put it when that happened was maybe because i was I, you know i had finished or or was working on finishing my Jim Jones series at the time, and this came up was that uh if you look at like what happened to uh the civil rights movement and the just sort of the campus the the youth young people protest movements in the nineteen sixties you know in nineteen sixty eight Martin Luther King was still kind of keeping a lid on the black power movement. To a degree, uh, his sort of gravitas and, and moral authority that he was able to bring um, allowed him to do that, despite the frustrations, you know, at the amount of progress that was being made um, and a lot of energy coming up from the bottom, especially with the young people who wanted to, you know, take more direct action and um, And then on the, uh, you know, the the campus movement, the anti-war movement you had in 1968, you had uh, Eugene McCarthy running for president, obviously in the Democratic primary, and you had the clean for gene movement, they called it, which was where all the hippies shaved their beards and cut their hair so they could go out and sort of work for the campaign for Eugene McCarthy. They were like, in other words, you have like these protest movements that are both being channeled into like a, a very sort of productive Um, you're part of the structure of the system, right? Where um, they're, they're working through the political institutions or through this, you know, the, the, the nonviolent leadership of Martin Luther King, what have you. Well, then of course the democratic party just jobbed Eugene McCarthy uh, in the democratic primary handed it to Hubert Humphrey. When the young people tried to protest it, they just had the Chicago police go beat the shit out of them. And Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of that year, obviously. And so you cut the heads off of like both of these movements. And then what you see in 69, 70, 71, 73 on up is all of that energy just scatters to the winds and latches on to the Jim Joneses and the Black Liberation Army over here or the Weathermen over there and, and a bunch of cults. And I mean, it was a huge explosion of cults, you know, and, they, and all the people who were joining cults in the early 70s, these were all people who were in the protest movement just a couple of years ago. And, um, that was what I kind of really worried about is you can get rid of Trump, you can get rid of Alex Jones or whatever, you can get rid of all of them. Um, and then where does that energy go? Where, you know, is it going to go latch on to something that really is not a part of the system at all? At least they were supporting a presidential candidate who was, uh, you know, put forward by one of the major parties that, you know, sort of operates within some, some boundaries, you know, that, that we can all agree on, um. But that once you take that away, that energy all goes away. I think about like when they, when Reddit got rid of the subreddit, the Donald, um, there was like something like 800,000 people in there or something. And probably a lot of people who went there all the time, but weren't like members, you know, subscribed to it. And it was sort of like, you know, it it was a, it was an edgy conservative subreddit, but it was Reddit. So it, it operated within certain rules. It wasn't like 4chan or something. Right. And it was sort of self-consciously not 4chan. The people on 4chan would make fun of it as being like the, you know, sort of the weak ass version of like their politics or whatever. Well, when they got rid of it, you know, this was a big part of people's like social lives in a way, right, as, as these things are for, for a lot of us these days. And so they went out looking for other things and some of them went to 4chan to go see like, Oh, at least there's people there I can talk to. And other people that I know who are on the Donald are like migrating over there. And a lot of people got there and they saw the content on fortune. they're like, Oh my God, like, this is crazy. I'm out of here. And they left, but some people didn't. And you saw like a huge explosion in like the number of people who were previously like, you know, again, maybe edgy conservatives, but, um, but, but somebody who would have been put off by like some of the stuff you would see on, on, on poll, Uh, who migrated over there and just over time, again, through that mimetic process, probably taking root, um, got absorbed into that culture. And, uh, you know, that's, it's like you said, that energy exists and it's going to go somewhere.
2: Well, that's the mimetic mechanism, you know, which, you know, Gerard sort of identified with this um, almost well, what you mean, basically says a satanic sort of, you know, principle that operates. And it's just the idea that violence drives out violence or we think, that violence drives out violence. Um, but in, in fact, it just spills over and creates a different kind of violence uh, and usually increases it and it comes back in, in different form, right? And this is why, you know, in in the gospels, right? There's there's you know passages like you drive out one demon and, and seven more come back and they're stronger than the first, you know. Um, it's it's all an illustration of this kind of idea. And the other side of this, I mean, aside from the resentment. Aside from the mimesis that you know is really at the heart of so much that's going on in our politics today, um, you know, be careful, you know, who you choose as, as enemies because you become like them. Um, is you know, this idea that you know when somebody is scapegoated, right? Um, you know, sometimes I, I wonder, you know, if if anybody on the left has read Rene Girard. That's a joke. I mean, I know they have, but um, when you scapegoat somebody, right? I mean, like what happens, right? I mean, Girard is very clear. Um, about what typically happens um, they um, i mean certainly they can become sympathetic um, and then mythology the the scapegoated person or thing is often deified um, and comes back sort of stronger with um, additional power because they they were the source of some kind of a social change that nobody else could affect other than their um, their um, you know their, their their scapegoated their scapegoating Right. um they they in a sense sort of held the keys to, to solving this problem or, or bringing out some some temporary peace um and in that process they undergo a sort of transformation so on both sides right um the the scapegoating has no no positive effects other than even if you want to call it a positive effect some temporary um, restraining of the mimetic contagion it basically puts the brakes on memetic contagion restrains it, um, provide some temporary catharsis, some illusion um, of peace or the illusion that something has been done. But structurally, this, this principle of mimetic violence is still there. We haven't done anything with it.
1: Um, Lacan, uh, to pull back from politics a little bit, I'll probably bring you back there before the end. But um, you know, Lacan has this idea of the mirror stage of early childhood development, which hits around six months into the baby's life. And it's just basically when the infant learns to recognize itself in a mirror. And uh, other people who have come after him have kind of developed a theory of how advertising works that draws on this idea of the mirror stage. And essentially it goes, you know, the infant identifies with the image that it sees in the mirror in like on a very deep level because it hasn't developed a strong sense of self-identity yet and so it it, it, like you know there's a sort of permeability between its its self-identity and its identification with this image but very quickly goes through this process of disillusionment because the image is an ideal image you know it's the infant without the discomforts and frustrations and dirty diapers and so forth that the actual infant has to go through it's just the ideal image of the infant and so the infant becomes alienated from that ideal image. And yet that image remains as a content of consciousness, you know, kind of sitting back there to which the child, the growing child can compare itself and always obviously find itself lacking because it's an ideal image. And that, that, that sense of lack creates the energy that then pushes the child and then the person to, to, to move through their life to try to close the gap between the reality and the ideal by, by, by going out in the world and acting in some way. Um, And so others have come after that, after Lacan and said that this is the principle that advertising operates on, except instead of a mirror, uh, you know, it's various media, the ideal image with which we're uh, invited to identify is the Marlboro man or the happy people in a beer commercial or the supermodel on the cover of the magazine. And that we go through this same process of rapid like identification with the ideal image and then rapid disillusionment because of the gap between our real lives and this ideal image. Um, and that then that sense of lack motivates us to fill it by going out. And in this case, buying the product that's being offered. Um, I've always found that like a, you know, I, you know, I think obviously Lacan's probably more useful to philosophers than psychologists for the most part, but I've always found that like a, a, a useful way of, of thinking about how that works. Mm.
2: So uh, Gerard basically said that, you know, people like Lacan, um, who sort of identified this this idealistic image um, uh, had sort of confined mimetic desire to one sort of sphere of life. Mm. Uh, same thing with Freud, who you know recognized the the mimetic drive, but only in the sexual sphere, right? And then Marx um, was also talking about um, mimetic desire without calling it that, but confined it to the economic sphere and Gerard said actually no 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 there's a more universal principle that's behind all of those things um and and it's mimetic desire so in the case of lacan there's no reason that we can't become our we, we're not we can't become our own models like an idealized version of ourself is many people's most powerful mimetic model and that's what drives narcissism usually right because everything is self-referential yeah. everything comes back to how you're measuring yourself against an idealized image of yourself, and what happens in mimetic theory, right? When somebody has a mimetic model that's an obstacle to them, they have this desire, um, both to overcome their mimetic rival, but also to be fused with them. They they, they sort of like seek this weird union with. People right in, in the Eternal Husband by Dostoevsky. This guy weirdly like wants like camaraderie with the man that are, that his wife like cheated on him with, and he sort of desires like this metaphysical like union with his his own rival. And that's also the case with the person that has this idealized image of themselves as their most powerful model. Of course, nobody realizes that they do, but they they become fused with that image. Um, of this idealized version of themselves. And those are the really narcissistic people, because they've, they've detached even from, they, they've, they've, they can't even admit that they're not that person. Right? In, their, in their minds, they are. And then everything is self-referential to that idealized version. They can't figure out why other people don't relate to them the way that they relate to themselves. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, for sure. And Dostoevsky, I'm glad you brought it up. Cause he's just, he's just the perfect author for talking about this like specific element of it. You know, it's the eternal husband's obviously a, a perfect example, but it's right there from the very beginning of his work. Like you look in poor folk, there's a love triangle and the, well, there's several of his early stories where the, the protagonist is essentially the loser in a love triangle. And he doesn't uh, just sort of move on with his life or say, you know, I'm gonna go find somebody else. Instead, he ingratiates himself into the like sort of relationship and tries to, you know, in Poor Folk, for example, he's in love with this woman, but she's gonna marry somebody else. And he like, start, he busies himself, like helping to prepare the nuptials and like prepare the wedding and stuff for them. Um, in other books, you know, the the one who uh, is the the loser in the love triangle does things to uh, facilitate like the romantic meetings between the person, the woman he wants and her other suitor doing all the, because in the, the great thing about Dostoevsky is, is the thing like like his book, uh, uh, Gerard's book on Dostoevsky was, it was just, I mean, that it was one of my major holy shit moments where it like transformed the way I thought about not just literature, about everything, including my own life, where how, you know, um, all of Dostoevsky's pre-exile works. And this is just, Gerard's so brilliant for noticing this. Like there's, I've I've read a ton of critics about Dostoevsky and nobody has picked up on this in the same way he did. That in all of his pre-exile works, before he went to prison, he presents, you know, say like, there's this, you know, you're you're in a love triangle. She wants somebody else though. And so you kind of ingratiate yourself into the relationship, try to be friends with the husband, you know, or that, that she's with. Trying to help with you know prepare their wedding, like all of these things, and it's Dostoevsky in these early books accepts the protagonist's view of things that he's doing this out of selflessness or because his love for her is just so pure that really he just wants her to be happy, even though um, you know that if that means that she wants to be with somebody else, well then that's great. He just loves her so much that he wants, and of course, like any any person who's being remotely honest understands that you know a person who's in that situation especially if you are in the process of ingratiating yourself to your rival and, and, and so forth feels nothing but self-loathing and rage and frustration. Right. And that, and that, and you know, uh, and, and the whole, the reason like all of Dostoevsky's works are inferior to the ones that he you know created after his exile is that he did take the explanation, the understanding of, of the moral understanding of his protagonist for granted as being real. He took him at face value. And then once he gets, you know, through that process of exile, because Dostoevsky was very much that way in his own life, right? He had these love triangles where he behaved in the exact same way that his protagonists would behave. And he was so 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 all those early works sort of have like a self justifying element to them, right, where he's almost like describing himself in a way that's morally, uh, that that it's morally elevated. And then once he gets out of the exile, you know, he, he starts to the eternal husband, he kind of starts to put it, put two and two together but then i think he kind of punts at the end because you know it's sort of like the very end is just very unsatisfactory mm-hmm. because everything kind of comes together and like you know works out but then after that you know i think his, i think his next book after that was he might have wrote how written houses of the dead or house of the dead but then after that in 1863 he writes the underground man and i mean it's probably my favorite novel i've read it so many damn times it's just Sometimes I'll just pick it up and read it like because I'm bored and don't have anything to do. And then I'll just flip to a random page and then I'll just end up reading it to the end. It's so great because he just walks out, you know, onto the battlefield completely naked, like no armor whatsoever. And it's just just incredibly brutally honest about the fact that all of these self-justifying sort of moral postures that we've taken on are really a cover for something that is you know that it's much more base you know that your your um selflessness it it might be a uh you know it might be a cover for masochism or your uh you know your humility your extreme humility to the point of self-abnegation might actually be an expression of your extreme pride and uh that that book was um yeah it was definitely transformative for me for sure (laughs)
2: <laughs> we can I think we can even take this back to Lacan and, and the you know seeing one's image in the mirror. Because what the novels were for Dostoevsky were a mirror to himself and allowed him to see um his own vacuousness and emptiness, and he saw that he was lying to himself um in his earlier novels. So Gerard talks about this, he calls it a literary conversion that Gerard had, um, you know, probably goes hand in hand with the spiritual one, but um, you know, before the exile, when he wrote the inferior, earlier works and I'm comfortable saying that they're, they're just inferior. He had, had accepted the romantic lie and and he wrote characters that um, where mimesis was not really the structure of those relationships, so they weren't great characters. They were romantic characters, and after he'd undergone this experience, he, you know, Girard talks about it at the end of *Deceit Desire* in the novel, and it's beautiful. He he added this chapter at the very end because at the end of *Deceit Desire* in the novel, Girard himself had underwent this kind of um, experience. And he was finished with it. And then he said, nope, I have to add this last chapter to explain what I've seen. And he uses Dostoevsky as an example. And he said, the novelist, like Dostoevsky, reads what he has written, his earlier works, or the first draft of one of his works. And he sees that it's bullshit. And he sees that he's not being honest with himself. He sees these things in himself. And he he has to undergo a kind of death. And it's it's really it's death to his ego. Um, it's a recognition, and acceptance that he's got some of these tendencies, that he's got these insecurities. And he undergoes this kind of death. And, and it's through that death that enables him to become a great novelist, right? A great artist or a great writer. Um, just so powerful. And then he goes, you know, so he contrasts the romantic lies to what Gerard calls novelistic truth. And the novel acts as a mirror to his own humanity. And so often that's the case with us. Like we can't see things in ourselves unless, um, you know, somebody else uh, shows us. Or, you know, if we've written anything, sometimes we can see our own um, bullshit in the very things that we've written. I know that I have. Um, and and that, that so, and I think this applies, you don't have to be a writer to understand what we're talking about here. You know, this is just something that applies to life in general.
1: Yeah, Dostoevsky, um, you know, I, in my episode on Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, I contrast him in a way that was in, in, like influenced or inspired a lot by uh, by Gerard's work on the two and um you know i i i sort of uh, i i come up with a version of the prodigal son parable toward the end to kind of describe how they are where you have these two imagine there's two prodigal sons and they go off together and they find themselves in the same horrible situation eating out of the pig trough in some foreign land and one of them uh Dostoevsky in this case has the awakening that the prodigal son has in the the biblical story where he says what are we doing here this is crazy it's like you know, leading off into a, a horrible disaster for us. And moreover, if we go back home, you know, people are going to celebrate. They'll be happy we're home. Um, you know, even my father's servants eat better than we're eating right now. And um, this is just all crazy. Who are we to think that we knew better than our father or our older brother, or our community, all of these people. And then the other prodigal son who still got his face in the trough. And this is Nietzsche. He looks up and he spits on the ground and says, then go back to your daddy, you coward. And you know, Dostoevsky says, well, don't you understand where this is headed? And D- Nietzsche, I think, you know, would have said, yeah, I know exactly where this is headed. Um, now go back to your daddy, you coward. And Nietzsche rode, rode off into the, you know, blind pandemonium of madness, like uh, kind of as a result of that. So you mm. have like this thing or, you know, um, both of them after they go through this like period of unproductive exile for about 10 years, Dostoevsky when he was in prison and then exiled out in uh, Kazakhstan or wherever he was. And then Nietzsche was, you know, he did nine years uh, as a philology professor at the University of Basel. Um, Very unremarkable period, very unsatisfactory period for him. He didn't really write anything that anybody cares about. And they came out of that. And if the first half of their careers and lives even had taken, uh, had followed a very similar trajectory, they went in almost, they pretty much opposite directions. Like once they got through that period, you have Dostoevsky, who you know, essentially, like, you know, we were talking about earlier, how every decision, like when I mentioned Sartre, like every decision you make is sort of informed by a broader context in which that decision takes place. And that context is something that you've made various decisions to place yourself in. And you can trace that all the way back to some decision, even if it was sort of an unconscious decision of the kind of person that you want to be. And And the, you know, maybe the, an interesting question is, um, like, and I think, you know, Sartre would, would, this is where he and I would kind of differ on it. Um, I'm I'm not an expert on him, but I've, I've read this part a few times of his work, um, is that he believes sort of in a Nietzschean sense that you can take this act of like radical agency and just simply decide what kind of person you want to be and that that can be like a, a radical act of will at the beginning that then everything else can flow out of. Um, whereas, you know, the other, the other view of it is that it's really like, there are things that we don't choose and that those are the things that really make us who we are at the base level. And so the time that you're born in the culture that you're born in the family you're born in, you know, um, all of the, the religion that you're born into just all, all of these different things, how you grow up, the things that happen to you in your life that you can't control as you grow up, that these are sort of the, um, condition setting, elements that, uh, that, that inform that, that gives meaning to the decision of what kind of person it is that you want to be. And Dostoevsky kind of, after going through that rebellious revolutionary phase, you know, hanging out with the St. Petersburg revolutionary literary people and everything gets through with this grueling process of, you know, mock execution and prison and exile. And he comes out and sort of has that humbling experience that the prodigal son had, where, you know, he, he, he accepts sort of the burden the burdens, the weight that his culture and society and time and place of birth and everything were trying to place on him before, and that he spent his early life trying to just get away from and rebel against and push away from, he accepts it and he becomes this sort of Russian patriot. He gets, comes back to the Orthodox faith and, beco- and, and becomes like absorbed and assimilated into like Russian society and culture. And, you know, his funeral at the end was. I think it was it was uh, they say the largest funeral in Russian history, and then you have Nietzsche on the other hand, who uh, who rejected that altogether, and he comes out with this idea of the Ubermensch, where it's just it's a radical act of self creation, where you unmoor yourself from all of those things that you know are are, are being weighed down upon you, and uh, and and this you know just just uh, starting from scratch and building yourself up from that as an act of will, and he tried to do that um, I think, you know, met with disaster. Uh, you know, I, maybe he had syphilis or whatever it is that people say about why he went mad. That may be true, but I think, you know, madness still takes the form it takes based on the, you know, the direction of your life up to that point. And when you look at the specific forms that his madness took, uh, you know, I think, I think it probably, you, you could draw a line between the philosophy that he tried to embody and, and, and that,
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think he went crazy because he confronted two irreconcilable things. Um, uh, You know, Nietzsche, well, we could talk about for a long time. I mean, Gerard had the utmost esteem for him said, you know, um, more than any other philosopher, he saw the truth of Christianity, um, which is, you know, the, 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 the sort of the victim and the scapegoat mechanism, even if he couldn't articulate it fully. Here's the thing with his kind of will to power and this idea that we can just sort of will um, ourselves to be anybody who we want to be through this kind of Sartrean blank slate idea that if we're going to will uh, to power, will ourselves to be whoever we want to be, that necessarily implies that we have to, that other people can't too. Right. Um, And that there will be conflict and that the answer to the obstacles that we encounter in willing the existence that we want is simply sacrifice and, and it's okay to sacrifice the weak. It's okay to sacrifice those who get in our way to building the life we want. If you extrapolate on the, and to a nation state or something like that, it's okay to sacrifice those who stand in the way or who represent a threat to, to me becoming that right, that person. So it is, it is extracted from the kind of social structure through responsibility and he recognized very, very, with a lot of clarity, right, that, you know, Christianity um, uh, had revealed and protected the victim, and that was incompatible. With with his sort of idea, right, and that Christians protect the victim because they're resentful, right? In the early days of Christianity, they were lower class, so they they just resent the aristocracy or whatever, the Roman Empire, and it's a it's a it's a religion of resentment. and And he said, you know, we have to squash this kind of mentality, right, in order to to, to be uh, to be strong, to kind of create the world that that we want to live in. Like we 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 can't pan, we can't have this. And I think, and Girard says at the end of "I See Satan Fall Like Lightning," essentially, that this was Nietzsche's ultimate. He saw it with such clarity that um, he just had some kind of a psychological break. I mean, there are endless theories to what happened to Nietzsche. I'm, not, I don't, I, I don't know, right? But um, it, it does. They do seem like totally incompatible, incompatible things. And at the end of his life, right, he he saw, you know, the you know Dionysus. Um, the, the the being sacrificed and the sacrifice of christ as as having the same sort of form and appearance with different interpretations and, and different things and he was so close right and, I, and I, it didn't seem like he could sort of um it, it it seemed like he was struggling with what to under what to think about the role of of victims in our society and the morality of of, of sacrifice and some people I, I think have, you know, there are different interpretations of Nietzsche, but I think the, the ones that, the one that the Nazis sort of ran with and used to justify some of their actions um, was this idea that um, the sacrifice was acceptable because of, of they were becoming, um, they were becoming realer than anybody else. And, and and they were the ones that were establishing these, these real values. Um, and that the the ultimate goal was to sort of eliminate this sort of slave weak mentality that was getting in the way um, of of their will to power. Do
1: you think there's a difference between the way, um, well, like conservative and liberal societies or maybe uh, reactionaries and revolutionaries, however you want to, would like to frame that deal with uh, mimetic conflict. Like, I think for like, I guess maybe I should flesh that out a little bit. Like I think about, uh, what was the word you use? Catacon, right? These are institutions or, or, or means by which we, uh, we, we diffuse mimetic conflict and violence. Right. And so you'll have something like, uh, say, um, institutions of courtship and marriage that are intended to diffuse the just mimetic conflict. If it was just a giant free for all and everybody was competing, you know, in a, in a totally open and unregulated manner for, for mates, uh, we have like very specific ways that it's done, right? So in a well-ordered society, uh, you know, it's another way of saying that in a well-ordered society, um, desires are channeled into defined arenas of limited structured competition. And, um, you know, again, like, so sexual desire in traditional societies is supposed to be reserved for your spouse alone. Um, or Or if there's no arranged marriage, maybe with like rituals of premarital courting, that, that has to end upon the marriage of either one of the people, whether to someone else or, or to each other. Um, and, that, and that conservatives, uh, it seems to me like, um, like a lot of people uh, I've seen. I've seen people who interpret Girard and apply it to politics and say that they think conservatives are people who accept the fact that uh, there must be victims. And so in other words, like they sort of embody that Ursula Le Guin story, the ones who walk away from O'Mellis, where there's the, you know, this beautiful, perfect town with everything wonderful, everybody's healthy and happy, and they're prosperous and all the yards are, you know, uh, the grass is cut to the right length. Um, But in the middle of town, there's this building and in the building, there's a basement and in the basement is this child that. You know, looks like it's about six, but it's really like 10 because it's so malnourished and it can't speak and it's filthy and has sores all over it. And it's just chained down there and people throw it scraps every once in a while. And that everybody kind of understands in the town. It's not that everybody everybody even approves of it. Um, Most people just prefer not to think about it because they uh, understand on some level that that child, that all of their prosperity, all their happiness, all their health in the world above is um, in some in some way that they can't exactly explicate, uh, dependent on that child being locked in that basement. And I've heard people kind of interpret um, conservatives' uh, relationship to the victim in a Girardian sense in that manner. And I, I it, it never quite sat well with me. And as I was working on some of the notes to this, I was thinking about why. And I think it's that like you know conservatives are very attached to those those, you know, I said, the desires channeled into these defined arenas of structured competition, um, in order to prevent memetic conflict from getting out of control. And that conservatives are people who who recognize the importance of those things. So, you know, when like desire breaks out of its channel, you know, when when sexual desire breaks free of the approved boundaries of courtship and marriage, um, they, they recognize that that could Uh, you know really really like if, if it were to become general like really break things down so they would punish you know adultery by by burning them sometimes right by death it was like something that um you know you think of like a very highly refined society like baroque europe where even warfare was very structured so as to kind of minimize not only unnecessary death, but but also to preserve the honor of the defeated party, right? You have uh, these, you know, like one one army wins a war or wins a battle rather. And afterwards, you know, the defeated general gives his sword to the other and the victorious general says, no, 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 no. I got lucky and you fought so brilliantly and gives him his sword back. And like, there's this whole like ritual process to uh, to preserve the honor of the defeated party. That's something that's like obviously intended to channel rivalry into this structured realm, uh, which limits the need for escalatory reprisals. Right. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, like, like I think in other words, so, yeah. So in other words, I think that like concert, the conservative tends toward respect for those traditional and longstanding boundaries, even if he's kind of unclear on what their ultimate purpose is, um, it, 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 the revolutionary or, or you know, whatever today, I guess that's just simply a liberal. Uh, what was once revolutionary, instead wants to, you know, they 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 see that structure, and instead you know, they see those boundaries as a as a prison, and they want to liberate desire from all of those prescribed channels uh, because they they uh, they perceive those those boundaries as as forms of oppression, um, and so you know the result of this though, uh, the, of this emancipation of desire is an explosion of what had been previously constrained and limited mimetic conflict, um, you know, culminating in, in extreme cases, obviously like, you know, when it's, when it's fully released and all of these boundaries are broken down, like in the French revolution or the Bolshevik revolution, it ends up in revolutionary terror, but, you know, even in our, in our more modern liberated environment, um, you know, you, you sort of have, have democratized this mimetic conflict and, um, you know, that's uh, like, uh, you know, maybe that's what Jesus, I think Gerard might actually put it this way. I can't remember. It's been a little while, but you know, when he says, you know, when Jesus says I've come not to bring peace, but bring a sword. And he kind of talks in this, in this, in this manner that, you know, I always kind of, inter- you know, he says, I've come to set father against brother uh, father, against son, mother against daughter and so forth. I always kind of interpret that as saying back in the day as saying like, you know, that, that, that this new uh, faith that, 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 is gonna you know this new faith community is gonna cut through like family and community lines and therefore like break down all those old social formations and set people against each other. Um, but you know it may I think I think maybe what Gerard says is that it may also be that once uh, once those 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 uh, th- th- those boundaries and those those structured channels for desired mimetic conflict break down and, and and our desires are all liberated, it does place us into this sort of war of all against all competition with each other.
2: Yeah, you know, this idea that the highest um, form of human happiness and flourishing is the unlimited satisfaction of all of our desires leads to the natural consequence that um you'd want to see the elimination of every prohibition whatsoever um anything any obstacle that stands in the way of satisfying those desires and some of those prohibitions frankly are they you know what we call catacons they're they they restrain and contain violence taboos same thing incest right um these things developed um according to Girard uh to contain mimetic violence so in a way this you know this spirit um you know uh, which, you know, we saw accelerate in the 60s, for sure. Um, This removal of all prohibitions. I mean, you could think of it in one way as accelerating um, mimesis, accelerating mimetic rivalry, um, or, you know, just leading to kind of stupid decadence um, in a lot of ways, because our society is getting better and better at finding ways to diffuse mimetic desire and, and rivalry, um, te- one of the functions of technology is really good at diffusing mimetic desire and rivalry. Um, you're online, you're on social media. Um, you you have a beef with somebody, you know. You don't, don't go out in the in the street and shank them, you know. You you say a few words and uh, and you move on. And there's a million other people that you can quarrel with and troll or whatever. I mean, so in a way, it it diffuses. And and you know, also just with consumerism. Um, there's no, there's an unlimited number of ways to satisfy our desires. So, um, we've sort of, in a way we've, we've, we've kept up with the problem we've unleashed, um, because we're really good at generating, um, new, new, new ways to satisfy desires. If that ever stops, then I think we're in serious trouble, right? If everybody sort of turns turns inward, I think one of the problems with this, you know, removal of, of, of all prohibitions and sort of seeking out this perfect egalitarian, society, the sort of utopian idealistic thing where, um, you know, there, there, there are no, there's no inequality. um, There are no victims. Let's just differentiate between the structure, like the catacombs or the institutions that um, uh, are, 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 are really unjust and are, and are producing more injustice and ones that, um, are more traditional institutions like, I don't know, um, the things in the Ten Commandments, right? Um, you know, these just sort of basic things, right? Um, honor God, honor your father and mother, um, do not cover your neighbor's wife, right? These are, these are commandments. These are prohibitions that are, um, you know, to, to, to help humanity order their desires well. And even that is kind of a controversial statement, right? Some people would disagree with the idea that there's any kind of created order um, and that there's any order to our desires. They've just been unleashed. It's like a Pandora's box. What do you mean order, right? Like what I mean to tell me that some desires are better than other desires, right? Um, That in itself, I think, is one of the fundamental disagreements um, between uh, the different political uh, and the different political spectrum. I think the the fundamental problem to make this a little theological um, is you know, the, the question is, um, can we ever eliminate mimetic violence on earth? Or is that reserved for, you know, the kingdom of heaven? Is that, is that something beyond our, our reach? And this is a big, I think it's really important, right? Like to what extent um, can we eliminate all, all of this? Can we eliminate scapegoats from our culture? Should we try? I mean, certainly it seems like we should try. Will we ever be able to, um, in, in you know, in the Gospels, the a, after the crucifixion, which was an incidence of the scapegoat mechanism, the the apostles did not they they, they did not come to the recognition of what had happened um, through like a, a Stephen Pinker enlightenment. Okay, where they, they they read one of his books and they they became enlightened to their own violence. According to Girard, it was because a power more powerful than the satanic principle than the mimetic mechanism had entered the world at that moment. And, and, and that's what, what changed that, that, that's the event that, that changed everything. And without that, um, the, the, there, it would not be possible to overcome it. So, um, that's a long way of saying that, you know, in a society that's rejected that power, that's more powerful. Um, we're, we're sort of left with, um, you know, playing the whack-a-mole game. I feel like at a carnival, you know, trying to solve all the mimetic conflicts ourselves, and, um, and with, without while, while also rejecting the very sort of me- mechanism, which involves renunciation, um, and, um, and, 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 frankly, um, a, a conversion experience, um, and trying to engineer, the elimination of all of these things sometimes from the top down and if and that that in my mind is is kind of how 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 i see a big difference in the way that we approach the problem i think a lot of people see the problem even if they can't if they're not articulating it in the way that we are by using some of this language that we're that we're drawing on gerard from but the approaches to solving it i think um can just come from very different places does that does that make a little bit of sense? Uh, hell yeah,
1: sense? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's 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 great. Um, and I think that that's probably you give me two hours of your time already, and I think that's probably a good place to wrap this part because I've got a I've got a billion other things I want to talk to you about, but I hope we can do that sometime in the future again because we just sort of like a, you know, broached some of these subjects for, you know, a lot of my listeners might be basically familiar with Gerard. A lot of them aren't going to be familiar at all. And so I wanted to sort of cover some of these bases and some of the, some, some of the ideas covered in your book, which actually is a t- most of my other stuff is all stuff that's directly about your book that I didn't even really get to. So hopefully maybe we it's can do this again soon and, uh, and, and, and talk about that. Um, is there anything that, um, you know, just from the conversation that we, that you wanted to get to, or um, otherwise, like, yeah, tell people, who, 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 where they can find you. And I mean, I'll tell everybody out there, like this book, like I said, I, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke up Luke's ass when I say that, like I'm, I've read Gerard for a long time. I've thought about it for a long time and his book, I still got a ton out of it. And I don't know a single person who's read it. And I probably know a dozen people who have read it. I, I don't know a single one of them who uh, who didn't, who doesn't love the book and and, th- and not only like really enjoyed it, but um, but felt like it impacted them in a pretty powerful way and the way they see things. So um, I encourage everybody to to check out the book. There's an audio book um, on on Audible that you can get if you if you want to do that. Um, but 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 you should check out the book. It's absolutely fantastic. So
2: well, I, yeah. I appreciate that, Daryl, and I really enjoyed it. And, and especially, um, you know, you gave me a chance to talk about some things that I haven't been able to talk about before. Um, you know, specifically chapter four in that book, which is really about memetic contagion and the scapegoat mechanism. Which I think is the most important sort of part of Gerard, and it's the part that, for whatever reason, like I don't know, the media just thinks it's the least important part. And I, I, don't get asked about it a lot. I don't get to talk about it a lot. So we we went there today, um, and obviously we could, you know, we could do this for another three hours if we wanted to. There's so much there. Um, so I hope we can talk again. So, but thank you for opening the door um, to talk about some of those things that um, they touch so many different aspects of what we're seeing in the world today. Um, you know, as Gerard said he, he gave like the the worst um in, in, in endorsement of of not just my book but any book that he could have ever gave and basically said, you know with, with all of these mimetic things we're talking about, books will be of minor importance. Um, what really matters are, are the events that unfold right in, in 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 history and pay attention to them, like what watch them, you know, look at them and and that's where these things will be revealed um and we're certainly living in the midst of that. so yeah, thanks for having me on man. I really appreciated it.
0: let so-